There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Hello, everybody. This is episode 80 of the Intercooler podcast. I'm Dan Prosser. <laughs> Number 80. 80. We're still here. We're, we're still going. It's, 80 uh, weeks in. It's bananas, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're. thing is, we're, th- we're going to have to start thinking about the 100th episode soon, aren't oh, we? Oh, blimey. That's a frightening thought. I can't even, I can't even think about that. But that's yeah. a bit, yeah, I would say, but that's still 20 weeks away, isn't it? It so is. So that's going to be sort of spring, isn't it? But it might take some planning. Maybe we need Ooh. a killer guest gonna, or something. Are we going to plan a podcast? I mean, most unlike us. No, okay, let's not bother with that. Uh, anyway, so I'm Dan Prosser, joined by Andrew Frankel. Hello. Um, as ever, Andrew's there. Yeah, hello. Uh, now, Andrew, we've got a good topic for this week, haven't we? The racing cars, or rather the competition cars that never competed. Um, we need a bit of a sort of catch-all phrase for that type of machine. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure what that is, but we'll, we'll brainstorm later on and come up with something. Uh, Motorsport magazine last month... Um, actually ran a, a similar feature. So they picked out a few cars that never raced. They called them ghost racers, um, which is quite nice, isn't it? Okay. Um, but we, we, yeah, we need something of our own. But between us, we've come up with a list of the sort of most fascinating cars that were developed, that were built, um, that were tested, but never raced for various reasons. Um, and we're going to run through a few of them and then sort of explain why they never happened. And I guess we're going to ponder what, what have we lost for these cars not actually competing, um, how much more colourful might the motorsport world have been. I think it's also worth just considering how frustrating it must be for your life's work, or rather, you know, for three or four years, whatever it is. Imagine just being absolutely single-minded on this one project, and then one day, it's dead. Yeah, and and, and in some cases, um, that maybe we'll come to... I mean, sometimes these cars... um, don't race because they just turn out, don't turn out to be as good as they should be. 
Um, but some cars um, are going to be absolutely brilliant and they're going to be completely terrific and all the testing data is just fantastic and they've got a world beater on their hand and then some bean counter on the 34 <laughs> just goes, nah, nah sorry. Not no, yeah. we didn't sell enough crossover SUVs last week so you can't have your racing car, cans the project. I mean, that must be absolutely soul-destroying. For, for something, you know, if you've done a duffer, then probably you're probably quite pleased that, it, that, that, that your failure is never going to reach the public domain. But if you've done a car, which is, I mean, the, the one I think about at the moment is the, remember the Peugeot 908 hybrid? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that apparently was an absolute, so when, you know, when, per, when did Peugeot win Le Mans? Ooh, can't remember. Um, 2009? Yeah, something like that. Well, yeah. Um, and... Anyway, so when they went to the hybrid era, Persia, and they had this car, and the testing data was absolutely electrifying. This thing was a missile. Um, and they just canned it. They just said, nope, not doing that. And that was the end of their Le Mans program, and they haven't been, you know. Um, Did they ever give yeah. a reason, or has a reason emerged? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, it was purely financial considerations. They literally, you know, it was it was an expensive program, and they could see because it was a new era, it would not only, it would, and, we, and we know this about the hybrid. Um, sports car era wasn't it it, it, it was um, you know until recent rule changes an extremely expensive way to go motor racing and I think what they could see was that it not only cost them an awful lot of money to develop the car but that only got you into the ground floor if you wanted to stay on the pace um, and let's not forget the other guys who were involved at the time um, you know it was going to cost you know plenty of millions of euros um which they didn't feel like spending in whatever you know financial environment they found themselves in at the time which wasn't a good one for Persia. they were losing money hand over fist um so they just pulled the plug yeah gutting if you're okay never mind the engineers and the designers if you're one of the drivers slated to jump into this thing at le mans well imagine if you, you just know it. yeah and you know and, it's brilliant you know, you've been pounding around ricard and you're going oh my god this thing's <laughs> fast um, we're going to, you know, we're going to show those Germans a thing or two, and um, yeah. and they suddenly go, well, not only is the car not happening, but you know, you're out of a drive because we count mm. the whole program. Gutting. And you find yeah, yourself it... up doing GT Pro or something. Yeah, Ugh. it's yeah. I mean, that must be frustrating. It's that's a great example of the sort of thing we're talking about. And of course, whenever we do these almost list type podcasts, people will always um, cry. How could you forget such and such? Um, and so I think we should just turn that into part of the discussion. You know, we can't go through all of them. But if you think there's one that's got a really interesting story that we don't mention, send us a note, however you want to do that. Um, and perhaps we'll stick something up on Instagram. Um, yeah. That's what and the, thing, and the thing is, with this subject, I mean, there are literally hundreds of these cars. Um, we're not going to scratch the surface of this. Up. What I hope we'll do is we'll get through more of the, through, through many well, not all, but many of the more important and the more interesting ones. That's all we can hope to do, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's right. So I want to offer you one of mine now. And I've oh, stuck a couple of pictures up on Instagram recently of this car, just with a sort of two-sentence caption. Um, and I knew that it would just get a ton of likes because it's just a remarkable-looking car. And the pictures that I posted of the Alfa Romeo 164 Pro car... Yeah, um, there were some pictures of it with the body panels removed. Oh, and you see, I know those pictures. They're such a cool-looking thing, isn't it? It's just extraordinary. You can see and the you, Formula One car underneath, can't you? You can, and you see the F1 V10 right behind the cabin, just mounted on the yeah. floor. Yeah, um, and it's it's just the coolest thing. So this was a this was 
intended um, to replace the M1 Pro Car series, wasn't it? Which in the 70s, the M1 Pro Car was a... Uh, 80 and 81, I think, yeah. Okay, it was a category for basically the Formula One drivers would have a punt around in these things, wouldn't they, during the race yeah. weekend? Yeah, just as a demolition derby before the uh, before I the main can't event. Believe, yes. I can't believe it happened, and how brilliant would it be to have something similar now in equal machinery and really see who is? Would we still have Max and Lewis out the front, or would Antonio I mean, Giovinazzi I mean, turn I mean, out? I, I, well, I, I, I think in pro car, um, it wasn't always the obvious people out the front a lot of the time it was but it wasn't always um but yeah um it, what, a, what a wonderful thing that alpha was um and it was also itself um you know and we we, we talk about cars that never race but you just think about the you know that was a three and a half liter v10 race engine and which must have cost i mean you know built from scratch and that engine never raced either i mean we all know how much engines cost to develop um i saw it they brought it to a UK circuit, which I happened to be at. Um, I would have been very young at the time. Uh, well, not very young. I would have been a teenager. Um, it was Donington. I'm sure it was Donington. And this thing ran. And the <laughs> noise of it was absolutely indescribable. Um, and I can remember just thinking, this is going to be the most amazing thing ever. And we never saw it again. Yeah. So it was a silhouette racer, carbon and Kevlar. Um, but apart from that fairly apologetic wing on the back just looked like a 164 didn't it it did yeah. i mean if you look of course if you look closer you see the wheels and the, the the camber and how low it is and all that stuff but it just looked like a 164 um and so it didn't really have much downforce um and presumably therefore it was a pretty frightening thing to drive oh i think it would have been horrendous yeah yeah but it would have but, been amazing to watch 20 of them yeah. pound around wouldn't it but it was also um do you remember the, here we go, Alfa Romeo SE048SP? Yeah. Oh. It, it was on my long list, that car. But it was I, on I your didn't... long, well, I mean, I, I only mention it because it's, you know, it's directly connected to the pro car. I mean, you know, that, that, that was, um, as you say, it was going to be this sort of, you know, um, one make series thing. But also underneath it were the bones of a Group C car, um, which was, you know, right at the tail end of Group C, um, you know, after the sort of Jaguar and Porsche era, when Persia dominated, when the rules changed to um, these sort of, you know, fighter plane, three and a half litre um, engines where, you know, you had the Persia 905 and the Jaguar XJR14. And Alfa Romeo built one of those cars. How cool would that have been? And it had this V10 in it. How cool would that have been? 650 horsepower, screaming V10. Alfa Romeo just looked amazing. Ah, oh, it's a shame, isn't it? An Alfa oh. prototype would have been so special. So special. Yeah, so the 164 Pro Car never raced because the Pro Car series was binned and it didn't have anywhere to race. So I think they only built one and that was the end of that. Um, right, let's have one of yours then, Andrew. Can we do another Alfa Romeo? Let's have another Alfa Romeo if you insist. Uh, okay, so we're going to go back a bit. We're going to go back about 50 years. Uh, we're going to go back to World War II. Um, in the 1930s, Grand Prix racing was dominated by the Silver Arrows, Mercedes versus um, Auto Union. Um, and... Alfa Romeo had a good, what they call a voiturette car, one and a half litre car, and the rules for the end of the 1930s and into 1940-41 were going to be a one and a half litre formula. So they decided that they were going to make their response to the total dominance of the Germans. And so they produced a car called the Alfa Romeo 512. This was, get this, 80 years ago, a mid-engine one and a half litre 
twin supercharged four cam flat 12 what <laughs> producing 350 horsepower and 9,000 revs wow oh, god can you imagine what that would have been like so a, a 12 cylinder engine sorry 1500 cc's divided by 12 pistons yeah they must have been like coins. Yeah. Oh, Ferrari actually did one in the mid-1960s, 1964, the year that John Surtees won the championship. Most of his races were with a V8, but they did do a 1.5-litre flat 12, the Ferrari 1512. Um, but this was like 25 years even earlier than that. Yeah. I mean, that would have just wow. been nuts. I mean, it, and I think it was, it was, it was a Colombo engine. Um, and it would, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, that would have been, but I'm afraid Herr Hitler had... Um, other ideas about that and uh, obviously it got made i think there's a photograph of it and i think it was tested um but that's literally all um, so imagine what that must have sounded like oh and, and the other side seriously what i don't understand and i need to go and have a look at is the 158 which is the car that they'd had before that which was a one and a half liter car that after the war that dominated what they called what you read well that, i mean that dominated grand prix racing for you know the entire period after the war up until formula one came in in the early 1950s so why didn't they i guess because they had the 158s and they knew it they knew it and nobody had any money and i'm sure the 512 would have needed a lot of development and it was just too difficult because they only had one or maybe the prototype didn't survive i don't know what happened to it but um but i think i do know what happened to it. i think it's in the alfa museum so i think the car has survived um but anyway yeah one and a half liter quad cam flat 12 twin supercharged 1940 that is extraordinary bloody hell Okay, all right. Well, I'm not sure I can uh, best that, but I'll give it a go. So, I mean, this is a very well-known car. It's been described as the most famous unraced F1 car. It's the McLaren MP4 18. Um, and they were just, this was going to be the 2003 car, and they were basically just trying to catch the very dominant Ferrari team. Um, and it was, it was an Adrian Newey design, and it's basically Adrian Newey off the leash. It seems to me. Very aggressive aero, radical design. Um, and it, I, basically, it, it seems as though the car could have been incredibly quick, but it was just so compromised in that, that sort of typical Newey way. Very tight packaging that meant it had huge cooling issues. Um, the mechanics hated working on it because... Supposedly, when they, when they were testing, every time it came back into the pits, they'd have to have a fire extinguisher ready to go because the thing would just ignite. There's just no cooling air around it, so tightly packaged, it gets so hot um, that it and it was just very difficult for the mechanics to work on. Um, it was also fundamentally aero imbalanced the MP418, and so the drivers found it incredibly hard uh, to to wrestle with. Um, both Alex Wurtz, the test driver, and Kimi Raikkonen, the race driver, had big crashes in it. McLaren publicly put both incidents down to driver error. Um, you can imagine how unhappy Kimi was about that. Just to be yes. sort of called out by your team when actually the car was a nightmare. Um, and Newey writes about it in his book. I think his book's called How to Build a Car, isn't it? And he, how to, yeah, so if, if you haven't um, read it, read it. Do. It's a fantastic... Yeah, and it's absolutely not a sort of boffin's treatise which is full of no. impenetrable statistical data it's just a really really good read sorry mm. keep going <laughs> and he comes clean and he says that it was imbalanced aerodynamically um, and they could address it slightly by taking away some front wing but then you just lost downforce 
uh, and so that's self-defeating. And what actually was needed was to redesign the shape of the chassis, and then maybe there would have been something in it. But it was just such a such a tricky car to work on and to drive that it just they just never raced it. And so for 2003, um, they just stuck with the MP417D, so you know an evolution of the the previous year's car, and the MP418 never raced. It's an interesting one though. It's I, it, I love the fact that it was Adrian Newey really pushing the boundaries and perhaps, you know, like in, in testing or in free practice, the drivers have to push the boundaries and slightly overstep to understand how far they can go. It just seems to me that the 18 was Newey doing the same. And then, of course, it wasn't too long after that he switched over to Red Bull and then they dominated the championship for several years, didn't they? Yeah. In the, yeah. After 2010. So I wasn't going to go with this car now, but seeing as it's about Formula One designers pushing the limits, um, yeah. can we just do the Lotus 88? We can. Okay. Um, so I think, I think a lot of people know about the Lotus 88, um, the so-called twin chassis Lotus. Um, the idea was that back in the ground effect era, um, you basically had to run a car with no springs. Because if you couldn't seal the, the layer between the car and the track, then you lost your ground effects. So... And, and and a racing car, you know, literally, at the height of the ground effect era, the biggest single spring medium was the flex on the sidewall of the tyre. Um, and while that works really, really well in theory, like the old Newey car, in reality, the cars became undrivable. I mean, the drivers, you know, used to come out in the most terrible state. They felt they'd done like 15 rounds with Mike Tyson. Um, and so um, Lotus, led by Colin Chapman, just had this idea for a twin chassis car so you had an absolutely rigid platform uh, and then you had a sprung chassis on, on top of that so the so the driver could feel the car and wasn't getting beaten up um and it was an absolutely brilliant idea um it was also it was also everybody thinks that the mclaren mp41 was the first carbon fiber formula one racing car it wasn't it was the first carbon one formula one racing car to race mm. important distinction but, isn't it but and also you know mclaren are not taking anything away from McLaren here because they did it and they made it work and they you know an, an absolutely fair play to them but they also went to another they went to an American company called Hercules to get their carbon done Lotus did it all in-house for the 88 and the 88 came out before the MP41 and it wasn't as if the, the 88 was kind of like um I don't know kind of like some sort of, sort of concept you know the cars were built on three occasions during 1981 they went out and practiced and then they just got banned. Um, you know, individual race organizations could say whether any particular car and, and, and everybody. So the car goes out, everybody throws their hands up and uh, in protest, the car gets chucked out. It even got chucked out at the British Grand Prix, um, which must have been fairly, fairly galling. So it never raced. Um, and I, I think when it was absolutely new, there were problems with it. Um, but I think everybody could see it had enormous potential. And obviously everybody else was terrified of it. Um, and they kind of got together and made sure that that was that. Um, such a shame. Such so that's shame. one that's killed by politics, by the, the opposition um, protesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it did sail unbelievably close to the regulatory wind. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but, but you know, as, as, as you'd expect. But that's, what, to. That, that's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, let's swap from Formula One to Le Mans. Okay. Um, and I offer to you the Porsche LMP2000. Oh, yes. Um, 
So Porsche wins Le Mans in 1998 with the GT1, the 911 GT1, for the 16th time. And at that point, there are people within Porsche, not least the CEO, Wendelin Wiedeking, who's wondering, okay, so we can go win it for a 17th time. But what does that prove? You know, how does that further our cause? How does that demonstrate to the world that we are whatever? Um, So people are beginning to wonder, is it really worth a a completely new um, program and campaign just to win Le Mans again? Um, So, I mean, they decide to investigate. um, And what they need now is a prototype rather than a road-derived car, rather than a production-based car. They're moving towards a prototype. And of course, as you well know, um, with the WSC 95, Porsche and Yoast sort of came to realise, what came to understand and appreciate what a purpose-built prototype could achieve. Um, and so they, they set off down this road of a, a, a ground-up prototype, an open-top car, um, and it's going to be powered, and you have to remember this a little bit, by a V10 engine. Um, and what they... What Norbert Singer, the great engineer, realised is that for endurance racing, of course, you need good fuel consumption. Um, and at that time, rather than turbo power, what you needed for good consumption, good, good fuel efficiency, was displacement. Um, and so they had to get rid of the flat six turbo engines and bring in a different engine, a bigger engine. Um, and that turned out to be a V10. Um, now, Wendelin Wiedeking, he challenged the people who were running this, um, this programme he said, who is, the, who is the most famous sports car manufacturer in the world? And the response, of course, was Porsche. And Wiedeking said, well, prove it. And his point was that, okay, they'd had the, the 959, which was a supercar, but ultimately a derivative of the 911. They'd had the GT1, uh, the road car, again, a supercar, but it's ultimately um, a derivative of a 911. So at that point, Porsche had never gone out and built a ground-up supercar for the road, a totally clean-sheet supercar for the road. And so Wiedeking was of the view that doing that and building something very special would demonstrate to the world that Porsche could exist up in that that rarefied strata um, rather than just going off and winning Le Mans again. However, they did... Uh, they did get quite a long way down the road with this LMP2000. And the thing did run um, at Visac. It just didn't ever race. Um, and the, th- there are a couple of stories here. Some say that resources were diverted from the LMP2000 to the KN because it was an enormous undertaking at the time, wasn't it, for Porsche yeah. to develop its first SUV. And so well, that not, was a- not, not just its, but it, I mean, they did the Volkswagen as well. Yeah, so and so it's a po- huge drain of resources. Po- yeah. Yeah, yeah, physical, uh, human resources, certainly. Yeah, and so uh, there was that factor. And also the Wiedeking factor, let's go and build a very special supercar. Um, and ultimately, that's what they decided to do. So the LMP2000 never raced. However, the engine did have a life. In the, and it started life in the mid-90s as, a, V10, as a, a Formula One research project. I mean, car manufacturers do this all the time, don't they? If we were to build a Formula One engine, what would it look like? Let's investigate. And then it evolved through the years and it became a 5.5 litre NAV10 in the LMP2000. And when that was scrapped, the engine was developed further. It was increased to 5.7 litres and it became the power plant for the Carrera GT. Um, And so it's just a lovely story how from a Formula One research project via a stillborn Le Mans prototype, 
We had the Carrera GT, which is still just one of the iconic road-going supercars, isn't it? Which I've never driven. Which I've never driven either. No. Thankfully, we know someone who has one. <laughs> We're going to put that right, and we'll let you know about it when we do. We're um, going to put that right. Staying at Le Mans, but again, going back, um, it's interesting that I'm doing all the old ones, isn't it? Um, Jaguar XJ13. Um, I think everybody listening to this knows what the XJ13 is. Um, and it's just another one of those agonising what-if stories. Um, because, you know, the reason the car didn't race wasn't that it was a bad car. It was that it was a late car. And it said everything about, you know, the, that sort of slack, lackadaisical approach to such things by, you know, British management of you know, companies like Jaguar in the mid-1960s that just got it delayed and delayed and delayed. So the car, so the XJ13 was, it was meant to be, you know, Jaguar having had all this success in the 1950s with the C-Type and with the D-Type. Um, they made actually, they made a car um, which was very unsuccessful, which was meant to be the sort of the link between the D-Type and the E-Type called E2A, which Dan Gurney raced at Le Mans in 1960, I think. Described it as the worst car he'd ever driven. Um, and so Jaguar kind of, went away um but they did want to get back into um sports car racing um and they designed this you know they got malcolm sayer um this absolute genius of an aerodynamicist to design this beautiful mid-engine car um they designed from scratch this five liter um quad cam v12 engine to go in it and it should have raced in 1965 now, if you think that in 1965, Le Mans was won by a customer Ferrari 250 LM with a 3.3-litre engine, if you'd gone there with a 5-litre Jaguar, which would have had, well, it had just over 500 horsepower, so it probably had the thick end of 200 horsepower more than the Ferrari that won the race. If it could have got round, and of course, you know, getting to Le Mans is one thing, finishing Le Mans is another, but if it could have got round... You know, this thing was so slippery, it would have gone barreling down the straight up, you know, the thick end of 200 miles an hour. Um, I think, you know, there's a very, very good chance, given that, you know, all the GT40s failed, um, that it would have absolutely mopped up. But it didn't. It was late. Um, And by the time it was ready, which was probably about 1967, the world had just moved on, you know. The the GT40 by that stage, with its monster 7-litre engine, which was also reliable, and they had the Mark IV as well. Um, and the car was obsolete before it was ever ready to race. And it's just such a, it's just such a sad story. I mean, the V12 obviously lived on. Um, some people have suggested that it's unrelated to the V12 that went into the road cars in the 1970s and carried on until you know, goodness knows when it's into the 21st century. It wasn't unrelated at all. The two the two engines, so the race engine in the XJ13 and the V12, which we all know about in the E-types and the XJ12s and that sort of thing, they were related engines, even though they were they were much evolved. Um, so it wasn't that nothing came out of it, but, you know, that could have been such a great thing, um, a great reason to be proud about British sports car racing and, and, and Jaguar, as we had been in the 1950s. But nothing ever came of it and you know the car survived it got smashed to bits once during promotional filming i think in 1971 with norman jewis but they rebuilt it 
Um, I've driven it. It's a lovely thing to drive. Um, it's got a, you know, it's got a nice slow synchro mesh box like they put in Porsches because they realised even then that, you know, gearbox failure with uh, those very unforgiving dog boxes was the most likely cause of retirement in a race like the Moor. So <clears throat> it so easily could have been. Um, it might to this day still hold the lap record at Myra. Um, David Hobbs, lunatic, lap Myra at 166 miles an hour average round there. And I know that basically nobody listening to this will ever have been to Myra, but it's not like a sort of a speed bowl like Milbrook where you can just go around and around and around. It's not. It's straights connected by unbelievably steep banking. Um, and, you know, I have probably done an average of i don't know 135 140 around there and i'm absolutely scared myself with this the idea of doing over 165 around there i mean just how fast would you have to be going down the straights to be able to anyway um so a great great thing and uh, i mean it's great that the car survives but yeah how much greater would it have been if it actually got to race it's so beautiful isn't it beautiful car really is stunning, stunning. and i think there are pictures of um the the norman Dewis crash at Myra. Oh, i think it yeah, was yeah. Myra. Yeah, it wasn't Myra. It, yeah you see it buried in a plowed field don't you yeah um yeah wow what a cool thing okay right we're going to switch disciplines entirely now um and talk about rallying uh, rallying go on rally uh and I, I just want to talk about group s so you know a whole category that got binned um and lots of or several very exciting cars that were that were built for it that were designed for it so as we know group b was just a monstrous category and it was it was getting too fast and the cars were too crazy and so the FIA was going to bin it anyway it was going to be dropped in the sort of latter part of the 80s um, for a new category called group s Um, and now of course when Henry Toivonen and Sergio Cresto died um, on the tour de course in 1986 the FIA decided to hasten the demise of Group B, and they got rid of it at the end of the year, but with it, Group S as well, um, switching instead to the production formula, Group A, um, because it had to be seen to be taking drastic action. Too many people had lost their lives as a result of Group B, um, and they just had to switch back to cars that were actually slower, less powerful, um, and that's why they switched to Group B, Group A, excuse me, rather than this new Group S formula. However, there are lots of people who are cross about that because the Group S cars were not necessarily road-based, um, and so there was the potential for them to be significantly safer than a road-based car. Um, also, they were capped; they were they only had 300 horsepower, so significantly less than Group B, um, and actually about the same as the Group A cars. So. To a lot of people, it would have made sense to have stuck with Group S because they wouldn't have been a great deal faster, um, certainly not to begin with, than Group A cars. Um, but they would have been safer because they weren't derived from a road car. Now, there were a handful of these things built. And the, the important thing about the, the regulations was that only 10 had to be built for the car to be homologated. And so you're essentially looking at a prototype rally formula. Prototype rally cars... Um, just build the fastest machine you can possibly conceive and, and, um, and just for, with, for, for the, within the so, power limit. Yeah. Go on. So, and just for those who don't know, and I include myself in this, um, presumably there has never before or since been a prototype rally formula. Um, 
No, it hasn't happened. I mean, the World Rally Car uh, regulations that we've had, and different sort of versions of them since um, since the, the late 90s, um, have been, they're still based on production cars. I mean, the current cars that we have are wild, but they still have to be derived from showroom models to some degree. Um, and so, it's, no, it's never happened. And we we saw, and they're very well known, there were a handful of cars designed and built for this category. The Lancia ECV was one of them, ECV Experimental Composite Vehicle. It was due for the 88 season. Um, it had a 1.8 litre twin turbocharged engine, mid-engined, of course, like the S4. Now, in theory, the engine could produce 600 horsepower or something, but of course, that would have been, been pegged all the way back um, to 300. But it it was just made of incredibly sophisticated materials for the time, Kevlar, carbon fibre. So it was, it was, technologically speaking, a very interesting car. However, the Group S car that really demonstrated the potential of the formula was the Audi, the Audi Group S car, because it looks like a sort of rally slash Le Mans car hybrid thing. If you look at it now, it could almost be, you know, ripping along the Mulsanne Strait. It just looks like a, a, an odd almost LMP1 car. Um, there was also a Lada, there was a Toyota, there was an Opel. Um, and sadly, none of these things ever competed. But and, and we're just sort of left wondering what might have been if these Group S cars had been allowed to compete. And, and are, are, are also, there, are, how might that formula have evolved? Yeah. And are all these things sort of languishing in museums now? Presumably they still exist. Yeah, well, the, the Audi has actually been demonstrated a few times recently. It has run. Um, but the thing is, they were because these things never competed and they were never developed over a number of years, um, the cars that were built got nowhere close to scratching the surface of the potential of the Group S regulations. And so we'll just never know. Sad, isn't it? Blimey. Um, are you going to talk about the Polo as well? Okay, I'll just. This is my last one then. So, yeah, I mean, VW. So, the, the, the regulations that we have at the moment in the World Rally Championship and will uh, actually be replaced at the end of this year, they came in, in in 2017. And so, VW had dominated the WRC for four years with the Polo. Um, and it set about developing a car for these new regulations, which ultimately it was. If you, you just have to look at one of these cars, the current WRC cars, to understand how much aero they have. So sophisticated aerodynamically and more power than the previous WRC cars as well. And we saw on Rally Finland a couple of weeks ago just how frighteningly quick these things are. And, and VW was developing its car to go up against the Toyota, the Hyundai, the Ford. Um, but of course, the timing was all wrong. Um, Dieselgate happened. When did Dieselgate happen? 2015 well, or something? Well, 15 it broke, yeah. The story yeah. broke in 15. But the, 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 the true extent of particularly the cost um, certainly mm. wasn't becoming evident until 16. And we just saw so, across the VW group, didn't we, how motorsport programs were just scrapped. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, so obviously we know that the Porsche um, Le Mans program was scrapped. Um, less known to the point that people, some people at Bentley will still deny it, is that they had what would have been then an LMP2 car. Bentley wanted to have an LMP2 car. Um, they wanted something to um, celebrate their centenary. Bentley centenary was in 2019. Um, and Bentley has this thing about never entering a race it had no chance of winning. Um, and they knew that they couldn't go and build a car to race at Le Mans, having that chance of outright victory and all, because with the... 
Um, with the LMP one hybrid race being where they were, I mean that was just a cost. But but they thought they could go to Daytona and they could race a car in America, Sebring, and so on and so forth. Um, and that's their biggest market, and so that's what they decided to do. And Bentley would have had a factory works racing car. Um, yeah, uh, in, in time for their centenary, and that was going to be their big yeehaw. And I know this, however much anyone might want you to <laughs> deny it, because Wolfgang Derheimer, who was the boss of Bentley at the time, told me about it. Oh, wow. much, to the, much to the chagrin of the PR person who was with us at the time, who basically had his head in his hands. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, what a shame. That was another programme that, you know, fell under the Dieselgate bus and uh, never saw the light of day. I'm not even sure. I mean, I know they didn't build the car, um, but they would, they would certainly have scoped it all out. They would have certainly known exactly what it was going to be. Um, and then it wasn't. Well, I, I suspect you've got a whole list of them that we could run through. But do you want to choose one or two more? And then we'll call it there. I'm in a bit of a flat 16 mode at the moment. So, okay, oh so God. in the mid-60s, um, Coventry Climax, which had made the V8 engine, which, you know, um, had powered Jim Clark to his world championships. And by 1965, they thought there's something they needed something a bit more. Um, and so they were going to do a flat 16. And they had a thing, I think it was called the... Oh, what's it called? The FWMW, something like that. And so there was a flat seat. And that was going to be a sort of a production engine. So um, Lotus were going to have it. Brabham were going to have it. Cooper were going to have it. Um, and this would, you know, this engine would have been um, launched for the 1965 season. Um, but it proved to be, well, three things. One is it was tricky to develop. Um, the engine was not reliable from the start. Second... In 1966, the three-litre formula was coming anyway, so it would only be around for a year. And third, the V8 they had was still the best engine in Formula One. Um, and so they just stuck with that in the end. But that's, you know, that's another, you know, fantastic... Wait, hang on, so was that going to be... What was the displacement going to be? One and a half litres. 16 cylinders? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Less than 100cc per yeah. piston. Yeah. How cool would that have been? Crikey. Yeah. Actually, there, okay, there was one car, the Lotus 39, which was designed for this engine. And then it didn't get the engine. And so they stuck a, what did they do with it? They stuck a two and a half litre engine in it and they went off and did Tasman in, in Australasia. So, um, um, so yeah, so, so that didn't happen. So that was, you know, that, that would have been quite cool, wouldn't it? Because, you know, BRM obviously had their H16, a three litre engine. Um, and BRM also had the V16 um in the early 1950s and this was going to be a flat 16 um i mean the only other the only other flat 16 i can think of was the flat 16 that porsche built for the 917 Mm. to go can-am racing and also to scare the shit out of ferrari which they did um but then they suddenly thought now we'll just stick a turbo on the old engine and just go have much more power for much less effort so they did that um a couple of six-wheeled cars for you go on the beer, the Williams FW07D. Okay, everybody remembers the six-wheel Tyrrell, which had two, four little wheels at the front and two big ones at the back. So the Williams was the other way around. Um, they wanted, um, they had four little wheels at the back, and actually, that it was a much, it was a much cleverer idea because the problem with the Tyrrell was it still had these massive rear wheels, and ultimately that's what affected the car's frontal area. Okay. The Williams didn't have that. Um, so not only did they have um, 
smaller wheels, so their frontal area was massively reduced. So there's a huge aero benefit there. They also had enormous traction, as you can imagine, because you've got four tyres rather than two pushing you forward. Um, and, you know, briefly, it looked really, really good. Um, I know that, I think Keki Rosberg tested it, Jonathan Palmer tested it, and the car was... Um, the car was really quick and I've seen it run it run up, uh, up the hill but um, I'm not sure why they canned it um, but it was it was it was an example of Patrick Head at his genius best Ferrari Ferrari did the, uh-huh. the six-wheel car too did they um, yes they did um, and there are photographs of it I think I'm sure I've seen photographs it was the three so the, you know the 312 which was a type of car that came in like 1970 there was a 312T well there's a 312B B2, B3, 312T, T2, T3, T4, and T5, which everybody knows about. What they don't know about is the T6, which had, and that was, this was a, this was another completely different six wheel concept. So instead of having, so this was like the Williams, its four wheels were at the back, but instead of being on two axles, um, or four axles, if you like, um, they were twin wheels. So the wheels sat side by side, like a juggernaut. Like a Julie. Yeah. So you had two narrow wheels on the same axle either side um and i think the car was horrible carlos reutemann um tested it at fear run and absolutely hated it uh, and it never went any further but it's another interesting car mm. Um, mm. That didn't, i do love uh, that there was an era where these these titans of the sport were just experimenting with what seemed like completely bonkers ideas almost just in case what if yeah. uh, well exactly and you know, you just can't do that now, can you? There's just no scope for anything like that anymore because the rule book is so tied down. You know, you, you forget the number of wheels. You, can, you can't even, you've got no choice over the number of cylinders in your engine or, the, or, or anything. You just have to, you know, do what you're told, which is a shame. Okay, so that's a podcast about the racing cars or the competition cars that never competed. Um, if we've missed any, let us know. And the best we ones we will mention. Because yeah, sure. I haven't even talked about the Hill GH2, have I? Oh, crikey. Well, you're going to have to write a piece about that then for Instagram. Um, yeah, so get in touch. I, I've just realised that we could probably do one on the racing cars that did race, but shouldn't have. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking <laughs> maybe a front end, a, a front wheel drive LMP1 car, perhaps. That should be one, yes. shouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, good. Okay, well, let's leave that one there. That was fun. Um, please, everyone, remember to rate and review the podcast. That does matter. And remember as well to download the Intercooler app. We've had some great stuff on there. Uh, just recently, our in-house engineer, David Tuig, has explained why, in his view, the Alfa Romeo 4C was never the car that it should have been. It's an interesting piece. Um, if you haven't downloaded the app yet, if you haven't started your free trial, please go and do so now. Uh, we think you'll like it. Um, and as ever, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. For our 81st podcast. 81. Poof. Mm. Blimey. All right. All the best.